My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Today, we're going to be talking about a very interesting, counterintuitive little finding, which is called the performance paradox. The idea here is that like, the more we focus on performance actually the worse we will do. And it's a very, very canny thing to think about. I really like this idea. And so that's why I want to get into it because of course this season is about how to crush it without getting crushed. And if you're obsessed with performance and it actually is holding you back, that is not good, right? So it's a really sort of relevant topic for all of us, including myself, because I do this to myself too. Remember this show is like me. <laughs> it's basically me trying to fix me and hopefully you as well because we're all, a little, you know, we all need a little fixing once in a while or all the time. And so to talk about this topic, I have a really great guest. His name is Eduardo Briseño. Now, I met Eduardo a couple of years back. We were introduced by good friends who had gone to grad school with him. And he was looking at writing a book and he, you know, he wanted to chat about that process. So we had a nice convo and he's a great guy, you know, really interesting, thoughtful. He studied with Carol Dweck. So, you know, the growth mindset person. And so he just has this really interesting training in topics that we all care about on the show. And so I was excited when his book came out. I got a copy and I looked at it and I was like, well, he did it, number one. And number two, it's great. It's a great book. So we're going to be talking about that today. Now, Eduardo Briseño is a global keynote speaker and facilitator who guides many of the world's leading companies in developing cultures of learning and high performance. Earlier in his career, he was the co-founder and CEO of Mindset Works, the first company to offer growth mindset development services. And before that, he was a venture capital investor with the Sprout Group. His TED Talk, How to Get Better at the Things You Care About, and his prior TEDx talk, The Power of Belief, have been viewed more than 9 million times. That's incredible. He is a Pahara Aspen Fellow, a member of the Aspen Institute's Global Leadership Network, and an inductee into the Happiness Hall of Fame. That is also, I want that. I want that, Eduardo, if you're listening. I want that. He is the author of The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action, which is out now. Now, as I said, we're going to get into all of these ideas about performance. We're also going to talk about kind of entrepreneurial thinking and experimenting and learning. So this is a really good topic. It's great for September, kind of starting out in the fall, just getting ready to run and be creative in the process and be positive about it. Now, my small ask this week, it's an easy one. Go to netsuite.com slash FOMO and download the CFO's Ultimate KPI Checklist. It's very cool. I'm telling you, KPIs, I, I really love them. I remember when I first had to come up with KPIs for a company and it's sort of like a very valuable exercise thinking about what do we care about, right? And so you can get a kickstart with this list at netsuite.com slash FOMO. Go check it out right now. Sign up, check it out. I would be so thankful. NetSuite has been so good to the show. Let's show them a little love back. All right, and now on to the interview. As you know, I'd like to start every interview with the same question. And the question is this, 
What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? I um, made a major life pivot when I had gotten into investment banking for two years right out of college. And then I spent a few years in venture capital like you are right now. And um, I got physically sick. I got a repetitive strain injury called myofascial pain syndrome and had to look at my health, had to look at my life. And I realized at the time that unlike you, I wasn't adding value to my portfolio companies because I didn't have any experience. I had just worked on investment banking and venture capital. I, I didn't have a parading experience. And I felt like a fake. I felt like I was just pretending. I was just kind of repeating what other board members and investors were saying. And I didn't really, you know, I was just, you know, it was a, such a cushy job and, and it was such a kind of dream job in a way in, in kind of Sand Hill Road. And the people were really nice. And it was amazing to like listen to entrepreneurs all the time. But I realized that I might become disabled. I might not be able to use my hands. Um, and without my hands, you know, I, I was realizing I, I'm not really making a difference on anybody else's life. If, if, I, if somebody else has this job that I have now, these same companies are going to get funded. You know, these entrepreneurs are going to get even better advice. And so that's what led me to go in a journey to learn how to heal, but also go on a journey to figure out how can I live life in a way that I feel like I'm being a good steward of life and that I'm, I'm having a meaningful life. And that's what led me to grad school and to the work that I do now. Yeah, you're such a FOMO sapiens. I love it. FOMO sapiens, <laughs> you know, we don't just follow the crowd. We don't, it's because it's so tempting, right? When you walk away from those those industries where, you know, like everybody wants to be in them and people are like, why would, why, why wouldn't you want to do that? Right. But you know why. And, but you still, even though you know why you're, you don't want to do it, you still have to find the thing that you're going to do next, which is like, you know, that's a, a whole thing that we talk about all the time on the show. It is powerful. Now, um, the good news is for the universe that you did decide to take a different path and you've come out with a new book called The Performance Paradox. And uh, it's a really exciting read. So this is a big moment. I want you to talk about, let's just get started. Let's jump into the topic. You know, folks listen to the show are hard workers. They're folks that work in entrepreneurial ventures, corporate world. They're doing a million things. And yet you talk about this, this notion of performance in a totally different way than, you know, we the standard. It's counterintuitive, right? Talk about what it means this term performance paradox yeah performance paradox is kind of a counterintuitive phenomenon that if we fixate only on performing our performance suffers our results go down if we're so focused on driving our results um, and 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 the way to you know a way to understand this is if we kind of take it out of our context and think about what are great performers in domains where performance can be objectively measured and how do they get so good at performing? And we tend to think that the, the way somebody gets really good at something is by spending a lot of hours doing that thing. Like if you want to get great at tennis, you just play a lot of games of tennis. If you want to get great at chess, you just play a lot of games of chess. Um, but there's, there's lots of research that shows that the best people at those things, um, they don't play a lot of games they actually do something very different. So if you're, if you're an athlete, you're playing a championship final, 
you are having trouble with a, with a difficult move that is leading you to make mistakes, you're going to try to avoid that move during that match. But then after the match, you're going to go to your coach and say, coach, I have to work on this move. And so that's a very different activity, different, different area of attention and focus than what we do during the game. And the reason these people become so good is because they spend a lot of time working on improvement, um, which is what I call the learning zone. Uh, and that allows them to excel in the performance zone when they're in the match trying to win. And what happens to a lot of us is that we get stuck in the performance zone, right? We're always just trying to get things done as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes, and that leads to stagnation. And there's there's a lot of situations where, like for example, entrepreneurship, if you're kind of applying the lean startup in your startup, um, you are learning a lot, you're experimenting a lot, you're doing A-B testing, and so you, you are applying the learning zone to certain things, but often we have learning zone blind spots where we might not be applying the learning zone to our relationship with our colleagues, for example, or to our well-being or to other parts of our work or life, our leadership, uh, that where we, we might just be chronically performing and that may, might, might be hindering our results. Okay, so let's, let's, like, let's, let's get into some examples here. Like, I want you to paint me the picture of somebody who is doing this the wrong way. Like, what does it look like and what is what is the outcome of that? Sure. So um, one of the people, you know, that that I interviewed and talk about in my book, his name's Gino Barbaro. He was um, he, he came from a family of restaurant owners. He was a kind of first first generation to go to college and he started his own restaurant after after he um, graduated college and he thought he knew how to run a restaurant. So um, he worked really hard and he worked like, you know, 70 hour, 80 hour weeks every week for many, many years. Um, and when the kind of 2008 recession came about, uh, he just tried to work harder, right? He tried to just, you know, stay up later and try to make, send more flyers. And, and so eventually like he broke down, the business broke down and, and he had to do something different, right? So whether it is that, or there are lots of leaders that, are kind of assume that when we become a leader, we need to be a knower. We need to have all the answers. We need to be sure of ourselves. And that's what's going to instill confidence in our, in our people. And that's also a way that, you know, it gets problematic because then people start like emulating our behaviors, right? Behaving like know-it-alls as well. And then we're not sharing, you know, ideas for improvement. We're not soliciting feedback. We're not thinking and talking about our mistakes to learn from them. Yeah, this is, I mean, I was that person. I, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I was a total total grinder. Like I was like more hours. I remember, I mean, this is funny. So sad. When I was a, a, a baby investment banker, like we'd all compete on how many hours we'd worked the week before. Like I did 97 hours. Well, I did 99, whatever. And I do think, especially in the in America, in the American context, like there is this belief that more time, more hours, more hardcore, like when you think about business leaders and the way they portray themselves is like, I, you know, steal, you know, for breakfast and then, you know, I, I work all the time. It is lionized. But of course, we know, we know that, I mean, just from lived experience, from stats, from everything else, like that just isn't the right answer. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. 
One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. Now that we've defined the bad place, let's talk about the good place. You know, what does that look like? Yeah, so... Um, an example is, for example, Microsoft has made a transition from a know-it-all culture to a learning culture. And it's been incredible to see a company that now has you know, over 200,000 people really make a big cultural shift in many different dimensions. And when, when Satya Nadella became CEO in 2014, uh, he got his executive team together to think about what kind of culture they wanted to build. And one of the five cultural pillars that they identified was uh, a growth mindset, which was um, it's a term uh, coined by, by my mentor, uh, Stanford professor Carol Dweck, um, and it's all about a culture of learning, right? And so, um, and so the, what does it look like? It looks like first identifying what behaviors we value. You know, we, we value uh, asking questions and soliciting people's ideas. We value experimenting with things that might not work and taking smart risks and, when, and, and celebrating the risk-taking, the smart risk-taking, not just the achievement. Sometimes uh, leaders kind of want people to take risks, so they talk about the importance of taking risks, but then they only celebrate when those risks, risks turn out to be as we hoped, right? And so then that allows, that leads people to be risk averse because they only want to take risk when they think that it's going to pan out, which is not really a risk. That's the definition of a risk. Um, and so it's it's about also modeling kind of being learner. So Satya Nadella, whether it's soliciting feedback or talking about his mistakes and what he's learning along the way, um, that's that fosters a culture of because in a growth mindset we can all continue to improve right the 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 olympic gold medalists can continue to get better and so we need to kind of teach our people i think great leaders are great teachers and we need to kind of teach our people and develop a common understanding that feedback is not for example 
uh, a sign of incompetence and it's only that only that only people who are failing need feedback is something that anybody needs and wants and that the best people in the world use it all the time to get even better, right? So we want to be using feedback all the time and it's not a sign of weakness, as an example. Or thinking about mistakes and, you know, mistakes on the, on the on one hand are things that we can learn from. On the other hand, they lower performance. And so when do we want to take risks and make mistakes and learn from them? When do we want to try to avoid uh, risks and be in the performance zone? And just being clear about how we want to behave when um, and how we, are, we want to collaborate both for learning and for performance. Yeah, I think about, you know, it's like feedback or like coaching. It's kind of like vitamins. Once upon a time, the vitamins, for, for they were for the sick people. It's like, oh, this person's really unwell. Let's give them vitamins to get them better. Nowadays, it's the strong people. Like I read this article about um, Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil. And I, by the way, I'm nobody like uh, you can fact check me, America and the world, because I'm I, I'm not claiming that I have all the details. But I believe what I read in this article was he takes like 200 pills a day, supplements from a million kinds. I take supplements. You probably take. We, I mean, you know, and it may be psychosomatic. I don't know, but I take them. But it's you know, it's the strong people now who you know when you go to a high performing organization, the senior people like Satya and others, they all have coaches. It's not because he's failing; it's because he's important and he needs to you know embrace the growth mindset and do even better and be sustainably doing it and you know taking care of all the elements of his personality. So this all makes a ton of sense. Now you talk about two types of learning: learning by doing and learning while while, while doing, I don't know which it is. Uh, and I'm curious, like, tell us about that because it's such a, it's one word by doing or while doing, what's the difference? Yeah. So we, we often talk about learning by doing, I'd like to learn by doing. And the people who do that well, I think do it well, and they understand how to learn by doing, but the, the term implies that all we need to do is do and as a result of that, we'll get better if we just spend a lot of hours doing, executing, performing. And that's not how learning works. So the, the people, um, kind of the, the theorists and the pioneers of experiential learning, they talked about experiential learning as the cycle. You know, we, we do, we, we kind of make a, we observe the consequences of what we're doing. We develop a, a, a theory of how the world works and we figure out what we're going to experiment with next we experiment, that's the doing part, and then we, you know, it's a cycle. And so um, for just, just learning by only doing, by only spending time doing something, that works when we're novices, when we're just starting out something um, and you just give it, you try to do it, like you'll get better because you're trying something new and, and you've never done it before and you're, you know that you're going to need to like observe what happens and, and change and iterate. Um, but then we stagnate. Uh, and so learning while doing is a change in, la in language to remind us that we can both learn and perform at the same time, which I think is the biggest opportunity that we all have. I mean, because, you know, if you think about a tennis player or a chess player, they have the privilege of being able to like spend an hour or two doing deliberate, deliberate practice, like exercises or working on their top spin serve, right? But for most of us, we're so busy um, that we don't have time to just devote an hour to only learning. Uh, for most of us, that's, that's, that doesn't feel feasible to start with. And so the biggest opportunity is to shift the, the way we do things so that most of the time we're doing things with two goals, the goal of performing and getting things done, but also with the goal of improving along the way. 
and 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 that idea that we can do both of those at the same time um, is the is the idea of learning while doing. But it, it it looks different than just focusing on getting things done. And so, say I I, I want to make that change, right? Like it sounds good to me, right? And I am, for example, um, working on writing a speech. I do that sometimes. You do that as well. What would be the change that I would make as I did that, or preparing a presentation? We all do that. That what was what would be the mindset shift that I would have to sort of embrace in order to you know change that from learning by doing to learning while doing? Right. So if you are um, writing a speech or doing a presentation with the only focus of doing a good job, that's my only mm. uh, my only goal. I'm going to do what I think will work best, um, and I'm going to kind of write that down. I'm going to deliver that as best as I can. And it, usually we can even, like, we're, we're focused on proving rather than improving. And so we're just going to deliver it, like, pretend like we, we know how to do it perfectly. We're going to go there. Here's what I do perfectly. And then I'm going to leave. And that's it. And there's, there's, no, there's nothing that we're doing to learn. So if we're going to do it in learning while doing with the goal of, of doing a good job and also, you know, learning something along the way. First of all, we're gonna tweak something, do something that we've never done before. So, like, think about who am I speaking to, what situation are they in, and what is it that would might be useful to them. You know, I've never done it before, but I'm gonna just whether it's a small tweak, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this presentation as best as I can for these people, even if it involves leaping beyond the known, leaping beyond something I've done before. So that's one thing is we need to, if we do the same thing today that we did yesterday or last month, we can't improve. You know, in order to improve, we have to change. Uh, so to tweaking something and then observing, you know, did that work well or that didn't work well? And then I would say that the, the, this, the biggest kind of change that opportunity that most of us have is to solicit feedback, is to um, whether, like I, in, when I do keynotes, off, I, I often use live polling and I embed when I when there's time at the end uh, in the session, uh, I embed feedback in the polling uh, and I make that public. So so throughout the session, people are, are answering questions. And even in the, at the end, when I'm asking them, what can I improve? We are looking at what people are writing real time and, and I'm responding to it uh, because I want to send a message that feedback is, is normal, is something that we can all benefit from, right? Um, but whether it is that way or afterwards, like speaking with a few people who were there and asking them, hey, how did that land? And what can I do differently? What worked well so that I can know to continue doing it? Uh, there's, there's somebody, a friend of mine, uh, when he's doing presentations, he likes to have what he call, calls a feedback ally in the room. You know, somebody who he says, hey, you know, you're going to be there. Can you please observe so you can give me feedback afterward on one thing I could shift? FOMO. FOMO. Okay, this is great. I, I pre That makes a lot of sense. And in fact, I, 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 I kind of do, I guess I'm doing that. I mean, when I do my talks, I always spice it up. I'm like, let me try a little, let, I'm going to try this like, little risk here or there. And if it pays off, I'll integrate it going forward. I'm not going to like every time reinvent the wheel. Right. And then afterwards, you know what I, when I think about feedback, especially for these kinds of situations, you have people that are, that are consuming what you're doing. And they, these are people who want the best for you. It's like people who are like, oh, they've showed up and they're interested. And when you, when you give them the opportunity to share something, what usually happens is like you get, you're like crowdsourcing 
better ideas, new ideas for the future you can integrate. So it's a very smart thing to do. And I, I think it, it, it's kind of a perfect combination. I mean, you just have to be comfortable taking small risks and also being vulnerable, which are obviously the, the sort of the, 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 the drivers of these two things. But it makes a lot of sense. And when we're, we're thinking about small risks, Eduardo, you know, there's, this book is, is wonderful. There is a, I have a favorite part. I bet you can't guess what it is. <laughs> I do. I, I bet I can. <laughs> uh, my favorite part is when you're talking about learning zone strategy number two. Everybody, learning zone strategy number two, it's going to be your favorite part of the book maybe because we talk about, thankfully, Eduardo mentions FOMO Sapiens podcast as well as one of our friends, Luke Holden of Luke's Lobster, way back from like season two or three. And you talk about the notion of learning big by experimenting small. So talk about, we just kind of hit on that a little bit, but talk about it a little bit more because that is something that, you know, is in the DNA of all the folks who are listening to this show right now. Absolutely. And thank you, um, Patrick, for supporting me when I was when I was working on this book, you know, I asked for your help, which is another learning zone strategy, right? It's just you've gone through this journey twice before, you know, share what, what you know, what advice you have. And that's another kind of example of not just jumping to writing, but hey, like, you know, what have you learned and what can I learn from you? But and so one of the things that you point out is uh, you pointed me to Luke and in, in, in his episode with you. Uh, he talks about one of the experiences he had at, at Luke's Lobster, where they um, they wanted to expand. They raised a round of private equity, and they also asked for advice to industry experts. And in uh, kind of the the restaurant industry, one of the kind of best practices that's established to be effective is to um, when you're expanding to expand into existing markets and existing cities rather than like spread one restaurant in lots of different cities because that way you can concentrate your marketing into into one area right and and it's just more effective uh to to concentrate your marketing um and build your brand in a few cities rather than like disperse the marketing spend in lots of cities so that's what they did they did it on like a lot of the cities they were already in and it turned out to not be that effective for Luke's Lobster because um, they, they realized that people don't eat lobsters kind of like they eat burritos or hamburgers. They, they tend to do it more as a special occasion. Um, and so they, they're willing to drive a little bit longer to get to the restaurant. Um, and so when, when they added more restaurants in a city, uh, they they made the restaurants closer to the customers, but it didn't expand their customer base proportionally to a number of restaurants. Um, and so, but but what happened is that they said, okay, we're, we're, we have this idea, we're going to expand, we're going to expand in this way, and they kind of did a big big expansion, big experiment, and that experiment like didn't pan out as they thought, and so they they burned a lot of capital uh, where they if they had kind of experimented a little bit like at a lower scale smaller scale, they would have learned the lesson, you know, faster than they could have deployed the rest of the capital in, in new cities and they would have grown faster, right? Um, and so the, the, what happens is that sometimes when we experiment, we lose sight that of what our goal is. If sometimes our, our goal with our experiment, experimentation is to learn. Uh, and sometimes we make the exper experiment to performance oriented. Like we say, okay, we're going to we're going to try this. We're going to try opening new restaurants, um, but we're going to also try 
at the same time try to scale at the same time. And those are kind of mixing learning and performance at the same time. And you might choose to do that sometimes. We just want to be kind of mindful that you're, you're blending learning and performing at the same time. And that might mean that you, you're going to kind of make the learning harder. Sometimes uh, there's another example in that section where um, there, there's a food company that tried a new yogurt in in a in a twenty percent of the U.S. market, and and they they're really excited about this product. It was a very promising product, but once they learned what wasn't working, it just took too long to change the product. Uh, retailers had said, like the grocery stores had said, like we we don't want this product. It's taking valuable shelf space, and even though it could have been a successful product, they had to discontinue it because they just tried to scale too quickly. Before learning the lessons first, right? And, and if you li- if you read the lean start, start startup, it's the same hypothesis, right? It's like you want to figure out what is your assumption and what's your hypothesis, and how can you learn that lesson fast uh, before you kind of scale. Yeah, it's so I, I never you know this is something I hadn't really thought about before, but you're so right. It's like when you're running experiments, you either you're trying to learn so that you can then scale in a smart way, or you're trying to scale. But, you know, it's when you when you get that mix wrong, like the example you've given, it's very dangerous. And in fact, I think about so many companies that they get that venture capital, that private equity, and they should be in learning mode, but they, they feel the pressure to scale and then they end up scaling the wrong thing and they blow all their money. I mean, it's, it's a disaster. I've seen this so many times. And yet, um, you, you sort of, you, you, you lay that out in, in the way you do, and it just, it, it's a lot clearer. So, so that's, that's something that everybody, you know, should keep in mind that the pressure, you know, don't let folks get you twisted and focusing on the wrong thing. Now, Eduardo, I do want to talk about, so all this makes sense, you know, we're, we, we buy it, at least I do, but I think most of us buy it, but you know, what happens is like, <laughs> in a world where many things happen, where high pressure, where limited resources, it's easy to like forget the basics. Like this is like your broccoli, eat, I mean, tasty broccoli that you're eating and it, it's healthy and good for you. But then, you know, when, when things get a little rough, we start eating the chips and the sodas and stuff. So how can we continue to apply this mindset when we're under pressure? Yeah, I think it's like building habits and systems, right? Um, and so for example, uh, at LinkedIn, the top 100 leaders have a weekly meeting. And when they started working on LinkedIn's part of Microsoft, and when they started building on uh, a, a growth mindset culture, they added a section of that meeting. They just changed the agenda, and and in a section of that meeting, they talk about every week. They invite anybody to share something they learned the prior week. Um, and so initially, when they did this, uh, people would kind of often just talk about a mistake that happened the prior week. But then the leader said, "Okay, that's that's good that we're." hearing this mistake, but I'm still not getting to the lesson. Like, what what are we going to do differently going forward? What can we learn from this mistake, right? So that's the the teaching part of leadership. Um, and so they habitualize and they put it in the agenda. Like, if you want to change the conversation, change the agenda. And, and so now, you know, every week, like, people share valuable things that they have learned the prior week that might be helpful to their colleagues. And it turned out that after they make this change, like, people started asking, 
um, to join this meeting, like people who were not in the top 100 leaders saying, hey, can I listen in just so, so, so I can learn even if I can't talk? Um, and think about, you know, most people don't want to participate in, mo in more meetings, right? But if people are making you good use of something that's going to help them do their job better and grow, um, that, is, that is a system that is a habit. Or for me, you know, every morning I remind myself of what one thing I'm working to improve. So that's a very simple thing. It's a habit. It becomes effortless because I do it every day. Um, and it primes a growth mindset. It primes the learning zone. And it, it helps me kind of think about and notice opportunities to work at that thing, you know, as I go about my day. So it's about making, it's about habits and systems, I would say. Sounds good to me. All right, everybody. The book is called The Performance Paradox. If you want to pick it up, you can, of course, go to Amazon or, you know, your local bookstore may have it as well. If you want to learn more about Eduardo, you can go to his website. It's brisenio.com. He's also active on LinkedIn. So go check him out there. And while you're there, check me out too. And uh, Eduardo Briseño, thank you so much for being here. Great to chat with you, Patrick. Thank you for having me. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.